Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Mullark. Today's episode is on decisive results. Before we get into that, just a, a couple of notes real quick. We're going to be trying to do the YouTube again. For those of you who may have tried to watch, I did like two videos with some very unflattering uh, thumbnails of uh, Kaji and Toto. Um, was a little clumsy at them, and then promptly forgot about doing any more of them. Uh, well, forgot about it, and then... I don't know if y'all have ever tried to do, like, a battle report, but it makes your game infinitely longer. I don't know why it makes it so much longer, but it really does. And most of the folks around here, you know, the people I play with, they've got lives. You know, they've got families, they've got kids, they've got jobs. And uh, besides just reading old books and talking about them, like my job... So it's a little bit harder to convince them, but the way that I'm going to try it here uh, coming up for, for the game that Kaji and I are going to be discussing is to take these pictures and basically run it like a play-by-play. -play. I don't know if you watch uh, football or if you've lo even looked at old uh, military maps um, where they show like the arrows pointing in various areas saying, okay, these guys pushed this way, these guys pushed this way. Oh, there was a counter push and like there's the, the kind of back and forth and you can see the explanation there. I was thinking something kind of like that, where there's the just kind of the overhead picture and you can see both of the teams and just kind of a running play-by-play -play at the end of certain, like at the end of movement phase and the end of the actual uh, round, just kind of showing where things took place. And I think that'll be kind of cool. I'm looking to do something similar with Belagarth, but yeah, we'll we'll check that out. We've got plans. we got plans in the making over here and y'all are making some of that possible. So a heartfelt thank you once again. I'm almost to the end of the Horus Heresy, y'all. I don't, I don't know how many of you have read uh, the Black Library's Horus Heresy, and this is like the precursor to Warhammer 40k, uh, like you know, 10,000 years beforehand, at the time of the Primarchs, when the Emperor strode the galaxy. Big deals. Big deals. And I'm nearing the end of it. And I'm sad, because I've really been enjoying this book series. I've been reading it since 2017, now, so that's five years. Now, I've, I've been reading them in, in very limited sections, like maybe uh, 10 or 20 minutes worth of reading a day so that I don't just... Because if I, if I let myself, those books will disappear. One a day, easily. Just eat it right up. And then forget everything else. I was like, wait, I was supposed to eat or something today, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, so I've been limiting myself on those. And so I've, I've stretched them out this, uh, these last five years. And it's going to be weird not reading them anymore, I guess. And, and to kind of point out again how weird this is, I don't like fiction. 
I know that may seem strange, a person who runs a a show on wargaming, uh, a lot of which is like set in fiction, but most fiction I don't find realistic enough, as silly as that sounds. I'm a historian, okay? I've, I've been reading history books and philosophy books and such since I was a kid. I've always enjoyed nonfiction, and most fiction is just, just too shallow. There's not enough development. There's not enough uh, st like structure and depth to the world. It's just kind of this, this loose construct that we're supposed to follow along. And there's some of the older books are, are, are decent, like uh, some of the, for instance, re reading some of the genre setters, you know, like Dracula or Frankenstein. It's not so much about reading them for p pleasure as much, though I really did enjoy uh, Frankenstein. It's one of my very favorite books. Um, but it's more about kind of embracing that classical idea, kind of understanding where literature was and how it's kind of come along. And, and I mean, that's a good reason why the classics exist. Um, I also like a lot of them, but uh, so reading a lot of other fiction is difficult, especially ones where they're in their own world, because most of the time that world is not convincing to me, and it needs to be. So stuff like Lord of the Rings, fantastic. I loved Lord of the Rings. Uh, you have this very, very developed world, very detailed storytelling, uh, just, just my kind of stuff. And Warhammer 40k has ticked all those boxes too. Plus, there's no romance. I... I'm not going to give away too much of my personal life, but uh, it's not that I don't mind romance in my in my real life, but in my literature, I often find it distracting. It's not well written. I, I don't know if y'all are, are agreement here, but like it's not realistic enough. It's one of those things where you're reading through it and it's just lacking a, a visceral something. So I would, I, I, I yeah, I and of course most of the history books I'm reading don't include any of that stuff either. So having a fiction series that focuses not on that interpersonal um, like romance stuff, but more on, well, some of it's just violence. Let's be honest, it's just, some of it's just gratuitous violence. But a lot of it is the philosophy of it, especially the Horus Heresy, these, these big questions that get asked. I love that. I just love that about this series. So I'm probably going to go back and read it again, if we're being honest, and not limit myself and just blow through it. And I know we've got the, um, the Siege of Terra, books and I'm about to crack into those so I'm not completely done with like the time period but the Horus Heresy itself is coming to a close for me and uh, we all know what that means Horus at the gates of the Imperial Palace oh yeah but that's to come that's to come but to everyone at the moment because I watch the news Surprise, surprise, the guy who's obsessed with nonfiction watches the news. And, of course, I'm watching all the stuff from all over the place. I'm following the wars in the Ukraine and Yemen. I'm, I'm looking at a couple of different um, situations that are deteriorating quickly in Africa. Um, you know, we've got a, a UN peacekeeping force that hasn't been doing anything. You've got some pretty severe protests about their presence in the country at all. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's getting kind of hairy all over the place. And it's hot. You all notice this? It is hot. The West, Western United States, which is where I'm at, on fire. Australia, from what I understand, on fire. Europe, parts of it, on fire. So the, the world is on fire right now. Literally. I mean, metaphysically, metaphorically too, maybe metaphysically, I don't know. Um, but, but certainly, uh, literally. And what that is indicative of is heat. You know, a, just a massive amount of heat that we're all dealing with. And so, like I was saying about practice a couple weeks ago, where we're taking the time and making sure that we're sitting down and we're drinking water and we're taking our armor off, letting, letting everything breathe. This is important. 
if we want to continue doing this, because even the most mighty of armies have been laid low by the summer heat. I wouldn't want to be in the Ukraine right now for many reasons, but fighting a war in this sort of heat, my word, can you imagine? That's just rough. So to all of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering through this, we're in this together, right? We got this. And we just got to mind ourselves. Uh, the fighting will be there. We're going to get back up and fight again in 10 minutes, right? And if we're doing Warhammer 40K, well, this is the, I don't know, this is an ideal <laughs> year to be doing it, I guess, get in some nice air-conditioned areas to, to hopefully do that. But, but enough of me yammering. We're not here to talk about the weather. We are here to talk about how to achieve decisive results. We have spoken before about how many times in movies and literature the conclusion of a war is in one large climactic battle. One huge push by the good guys against the bad guys in which their frontal force, that, that momentum, carries the day and wipes out the enemy. And life is not that clean. And neither is it like war gaming because it you know models what we're going after, which is the very, very messy activity that is war. And as we know from previous chapters, from free previous episodes, War is not often won by these large, big battles, but by multiple smaller battles that culminate. And that is strategy, right? We've talked about that, that is strategy taking the results of these multiple smaller battles and combining them into an overall victory. This is how things are most, most often achieved, not only in uh, the real world in terms of fighting, but a lot of times in war gaming as well. Now, granted, a lot of the times in war gaming... Uh, we are not necessarily playing out an entire campaign. For most of us that play Warhammer 40k or similar tabletop games, what we see is the snapshot of one battle or one section of one battlefield. And it's not the overall strategy. If we're thinking overall strategy, think something like Civilization, where you have, uh, again, these smaller battles, but then you're using them in a bigger way. They all influence one's national policy, that extension. But even on the field, there's often a lot of smaller battles that are taking place. You have skirmishes taking place on the wings, right? You have this, this push, that, this back and forth of wills and, and attrition between the centers. You have a lot of separate little fights taking place on the overall field. And all of those fights, those smaller fights, feed into the big one. Same thing with 40K. It's not like all of our forces is, are pushing in one direction. I mean, they might. There's certain forces that do work off of the exact opposite principle. <laughs> that we are advising here. Uh, but, but in most cases, you've got a lot of smaller skirmishes, a lot of smaller actions that kind of come together into a larger whole. Now, once again, it would be nice. It would be nice if all of our efforts could just go into one large push. And sometimes, that again, that does work. But most of the time, it just leaves us kind of scattered and spread out. I mean, I'm sure many of us who do physical war gaming, something like Bell or the SCA, that we have been privy to a full charge right? The lay on is called or, or the, the go is called and immediately is charge and people go sprinting across the field and usually arrive staggered because some people are slower and some people are faster. And it often breaks 
because the enemy has a chance to kind of reinforce, make sure that they've plugged anything and they can kind of see where you're coming in because we're coming in hot. And I have seen very few, usually if those kind of charges work, it's against very new people who don't know how to come together and let the wave break over them. But for most veterans, most people who know what they're doing, that full-on charge is going to be decently easy to beat. The same kind of thing a lot of times in 40k too, like there's a lot of big guns on either side. Oftentimes without skillful maneuver, a full-on charge is just going to be met with a cannonade. So these smaller combats, we're looking for these smaller combats. And in general, we can think about war in, in comprising of three different types of operations for each, whether we're doing offensive or defensive, we have three different types of operations that they can be sorted into very, very easily. So let's talk about offensive operations real quick. Our options here are number one, destroy the enemy, right? We're all kind of trying to do that anyways, even though it might not be the ultimate objective, you know, we can still win a game with our enemies still being on the board, for instance, in 40k, there's a lot of scenarios in physical wargaming where you can also win with people still being out there. So destroying the enemy isn't necessarily the most important, but it is absolutely one of the operations we can partake in. The second one is to conquer a place. And the third one is to conquer an object. And so when we're, I want to differentiate these two things because you might think, okay, what, what is the difference between a place and an object? Because most of the time an army isn't going to be carrying around something like uh, the Ark of the Covenant or something like that that is um, a, a real physical objective. Sometimes if you have a, a flag, so like capture the flag or something along those lines, you have a, a specific object that is being gone for. But most of the time, when we're speaking about place versus object, think about what was there before people and what people put there. So a place would be a wide open plain, right? The, the, the fields that we're fighting on, that would be the place. The building that we're fighting over, let's say that there's a, like a large temple in the middle of it or something, we're fighting over that temple. That temple is the object, right? The ground around it, the place, the object itself, which is a point of, of interest. So let's say one side wants it for it's their holy site and the other one wants it because they're trying to destroy the holy site for a very, very dark, dark example that we would often see in something like 40K. Um, you know, in this way, we're able to kind of see the difference again. Like there's a difference between taking a hilltop and uh, taking some sort of building complex or even, even like wanting that built hilltop for the thing on the top of it. Right. And so the differentiation here, it's, it's a very thin line between these two sometimes, but uh, it, 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 they're just good to think about as being separate most of the time. On the defensive side, we have the exact opposite. Number one, destroy the enemy. Same thing. We're, we're trying to do that regardless of what side we're on. Second, defend the place. Offensive trying to conquer it, we're trying to defend it. And third, defend the object as opposed to conquering the object. And these are this is a very simplified version of what operations are available to us. And when we're dealing with these operations, we don't need to always be super direct about it. Our opponent doesn't need to know where we're going and what we're doing. Indirect actions are not necessarily covered in these first three. And so that's things like drawing your opponent out away from what you're actually going after or um, causing them to... to 
think of you in one place when you're actually in another place. These sorts of indirect actions or, or these actions that are done under pretense, this is trickery, right? Uh, and this kind of uh, shows us the fourth operation that is available to both sides, which is to lead the enemy to a false conclusion. Whether that's about what our priorities are, or about where we're going, what we're doing, leading our opponent to a false conclusion is huge for us. Remember, surprise is key in war. And if we can surprise our enemy by doing something or being somewhere that we're not supposed to be, where they don't expect us to be, well, that's, that's number one. That's what we're going for. And we have to make it convincing. That's the big thing. It is, it is easy to like, you know, make a half-hearted shot towards somebody's shoulder and then drop it into a kidney wrap. It is easy to make a half-hearted junt towards a objective and either overcommit to it and not be able to correct oneself or not make it convincing enough that your opponent sees right through it and doesn't go for the bait. Think about the game that Toto and I had a couple weeks ago where he had set up this nice little trap for me. And if I had gone into it with, you know, the conqueror's mind, then I would have gotten trapped by a bunch of psychers who were intent on doing me harm. But I didn't. And so this, this uh, indirect action that he did was not successful. Perhaps not because it was a, a bad action. I don't think it was a bad action. I just happened to see it. A lot of this stuff is luck. A lot of it just comes down to who spots what when. So when we're, again, we're thinking about this, we're dealing with either destroying the enemy, conquering or defending a place, conquering or defending an object, and leading our enemy to a false conclusion. These are the operations that are available to us. And different dip dispositions are going to affect these different things because they're not eternal, right? Just because we take one certain mountaintop doesn't mean we're gonna stay there. Just because uh, Colonel Chamberlain defended Little Round Top doesn't mean that he and his regiment are still there today defending Little Round Top, no. It was for a certain time and a certain time period. And for us, this can also uh, be the case. Do we need to hold a point indefinitely? Does it need to be a place that we have and we're kind of, it's our, it's our rock? Are we holding it for just a moment? Are we holding it for a, a delaying action? These different things are going to affect how conquer or defend a place is going to play out because if we're defending the place, it doesn't mean that we have to hold it forever. Like I said, it may be something where, where we have to give ground in order to take ground at some point. And so we need to think about that as well, that none of these things are eternal and that they're all shifting too. These operations, we're trying to do all of them, right? Every single fight, we're trying to conquer and destroy our enemy. We're trying to take places and take objects and defend the same. And, and trick our enemies, All we're, we're trying to do that every single game we play, every single match we fight. But these priorities are gonna change, right? You know, in, in one particular game type or in one particular fight or match, destroying the enemy might be our top priority. In the next one, let's talk about 40K, a lot of the times you don't have to kill your enemy to win. You just have to rack up points. And so at that point, my top priority is gonna be objectives right? Controlling places, controlling objectives, because that's how I'm getting points most of the time. Unless I'm selecting something that, that has me killing other folks as a, a means of generating points. But for a lot of the scenarios, you're capturing and holding places. And then if you have secondaries that kill, then that plays into it as well. But all these things are going to change where our priority are with these operations. And just because it starts out one way, doesn't mean it has to end that way. You know, I may start with the, uh, destroy my opponent, 
But once my opponent is broken up and a little bit more uh, manageable, I might then switch conquering places or conquering objects to the top of my priorities or, or vice versa. I may want to conquer a place. And then after that, because I have this solid footing, I can now turn my attention towards destroying my enemy. But these are things to consider. These are, these are concepts to keep in mind when we're looking at the field, when we're looking at the board, so that we know for our own self what our agenda is going to be. Because that's important to know what we want to do and how we're going to get there. And by looking at these operations and kind of understanding how they relate to what we're doing, the, you know, the difference between a place and an object, and making sure that our internal definitions are complete. That is a good way to victory, and that is a way to use this particular information to our advantage. But we keep talking about this, these operations, right? Destroying the enemy, conquering places, defending places, etc. And different battles have different durations, right? There's been some battles in history that are over in minutes, some that are over in hours, others in days. And each of these battles has a different face. Each of them requires uh, different strategies in order to win and or lose. But regardless of the duration of the battle, we are, we are going as, as a victor. Let's say that we are the one who is going to end up winning or the one who's going to look like they're going to win. We want a quick conclusion to that fight, right? Because we want to make sure that we're not taking more battle, more damage than we need to. If we're the victor, then that means that after this, we're probably going on to another battle. We're probably going on to another campaign and, and hopefully we're going to be taking the majority of our force with us. And so trying to get a quick and decisive victory is important. If of course, that is what we can have our sights set on. If the, if we're the defeated, now, granted, we're going to come back to this because we don't always know in the beginning if we're going to be the victor or the defeated. If we did, why play the match at all? But if we're going to be the defeated, we want to draw that puppy out. We want it to last as long as possible. And part of this, of course, in the real world is, you know, if, you, if we can draw it out, that means that our opponent has to use more supplies, waste more troops on our position or, or you know, chasing us from the area. It allows our forces to reposition and kind of maybe even come back together or make another plan while our opponent is pinned down, continuing to try to make that victory in that one place. It allows us potentially to have reinforcements come in, right? If we're, the, if we're going to be the defeated side, the more we can delay, the better our chances are. You know, in the Battle of Antietam, the, the battle looked all but lost until the... the, the the cavalry come running over the, the side, boom. Suddenly changed the entire face of the battle. And part of it was because they managed to hunker down and just sort of prolong it until that cav could come up. And there, many times throughout history that's occurred where you've got this, this ability to kind of draw it out so that somebody else somewhere can come to aid or come to help. And so that's within history, that's kind of, uh, of course, why we would do that with what we do it's not going to work that way right you know two days into our game we're not going to suddenly have a, a you know fresh reinforcements that turn it around because hopefully we're doing a different fight by then since our fights usually last like 10 15 minutes probably should be done by then a match you know we're if you're if it's a, a friendly match you know we're, we're there for six eight hours sometimes at least me and my friends if i'm down at the shop you know we're looking more at like a two three hour mark 
but these are for, for small spaces in time. And so even within there though, we're looking to stretch it out. As I was mentioning with 40K, you can win the game and have less models on the board at the end than your opponent does. It's happened to me many times. I'm thinking back to one of my games with Soren, where I nearly tabled him, but he destroyed me in points, just destroyed me because he had drawn it out. He had drawn it out, he had taken objectives, he had you know done the, the smart thing to get him into a victorious position, and then he capitalized on it. He made sure to use what time he had been given and, and was able to get points again for it. That happened to me a couple of times. It happened to me against Lee. It's happened to me against Toto and against TF. You know, the, just because we're destroying our enemy doesn't mean we're going to be winning in this particular case. And again, if we're trying to score objectives, drawing that puppy out is the best we can do. We're not looking to directly confront our opponent at that point. We're just looking to survive a little longer. And the duration of any particular conflict is going to be dictated by a, a number of conditions. Among them being uh, the magnitude of force, for instance. How many people are we dealing with and across how many fronts? You know, if we're dealing with 100 versus 100, then yeah, the battle's probably going to be pretty quick. If we're dealing with like the Eastern Front of World War II and the millions that got poured into there, yeah, it took a little longer. That took a little longer, that entire conflict, just because of the magnitude of force. There's been been battles as well. Think about the Battle of Thermopylae. Just the sheer magnitude of force that the Persians were bringing to bear. That definitely influenced the duration. And then, of course, we have the relation of force to the three arms that we had discussed, right? We have, like, our infantry, the infantry arm, which is your ground pounders, your, your front and centers, right? You have your cav which are anybody who's fast attack, moving around on the flanks, your skirmishers, that's to be thought of as your cav, and then your artillery. And of course, within the time period that Clausewitz is talking about, we're talking about big old cannons, like actual artillery, within something like a medieval uh, game type or a medieval martial art style thing like Belagarth, then archers, right? Archers and uh, javelins are gonna be classified as our artillery because that's our reach out and touch ya tool. And within 40k, or any of the other similar ones, like I know that the Imperial Guard have actual artillery that they can actually use as well, but most, most games are going to have these three arms in various ways, not necessarily called cannons or troops or, you know, cavalry, but the idea of having the strong center, the strong, slow-moving, but reliable center, the speedy things on the wings, and the reach out and touch you. Those are our three arms, and so if we've got different proportions of these, that's also going to affect the duration of the battle. You know, cavalry fights are much faster because they're much faster. You know, you've got uh, the two teams are coming at each other. They're going to be recovering faster. They're going to be able to maneuver faster. Everything is faster. And so because we're cav heavy, that's going to affect the duration of the fight. If the other two are more heavy, then that's also going to affect the duration of the fight, but we're going to go in the other direction with it. Because if we're uh, artillery heavy, yeah, we can put down some covering fire like you wouldn't believe, but moving from place to place, well, that takes forever. It takes forever with an artillery wagon train. Oh my goodness. And infantry, infantry, are, are they're kind of in the middle. They're maneuverable. They're diverse. But again, once they're in a place, trying to get them all together and moving to another place way slower than trying to do with cav right 
but they're able to do it faster than artillery. So when we're looking at the proportions between these three, of course, that's going to affect not just how our army performs and how quickly it can perform, but also in relation to our opponent, how that's going to work out. Because again, it's not just us that we're thinking about. We have a thinking, breathing, adapting opponent on the other side of the table from us or on the other side of the field. And we have to take that into consideration. Their, their uh, uh, three arms, the proportions of their three arms as well. Kind of a, a, a no-brainer, but of course, like this is one of the examples that Clausewitz gives. Uh, we cannot resist a large force as long as we can an equal-sized force. Right? That one just kind of makes sense. You know, an equal force we're able to resist because we've got the force to be able to do so. They're not going to overwhelm us as quickly. Whereas going against a larger force of some sort, well, yeah, that's that's going to slow us down a little bit more. If we're going for the victory, if we're the ones who are on the defeated side, well, we're going to want to try to break apart and not face, uh, face that large force as one large group that it can crush, but try to break it apart as well. Again, drawing that duration of the, of the conflict out. When we're talking about the three arms, right, to go back, go back through a second, you know, Clausewitz had said that infantry combat is quicker with artillery support, right? So if you've got the infantry combat, having the artillery come in and, and do the covering fire and break up the opposing line, you know, that's outstanding. That's what we're going for. It's, it's a part of waging a very quick war. Uh, Russia, recently in the Ukraine, again, I'm, I'm hoping to compile a bunch of this information and just kind of do a, like a up-to-date, bring everybody up-to-date on what's going on in the Ukraine from a military science perspective here in a minute. But one of the most recent actions they did was they lit up the entire line with artillery strikes, missile strikes, cannons, the whole works. And, I mean, there was a bunch of collateral damage. There were a bunch of innocent people that got hurt. But what it did was exactly what they were wanting to do, which is it broke up the cohesion on the other side. And it made the Ukrainians guess, where are they going to come from? You know, you've got this assault or this offensive all the way down this line. There was a masking maneuver and it masked where the infantry were going. So when the infantry actually got there, they did have a quicker time getting in, not just because they had the artillery support, but because the opponent, the, the defensive line had been spread out trying to anticipate where this hit was going to come from. And so with that support, with the artillery support, the infantry absolutely able to move in and do more. And again, when we're talking artillery in the modern warfare sense, aircraft are absolutely artillery because they can reach out and touch you. Or actually, they're, they're kind of mixed, aren't they? Because against uh, ground targets, they're artillery. Against other aircraft, they're cavalry, which is interesting. This, this three-dimensional warfare, it's going to require new levels of analysis. And Clausewitz is probably going to have to collect dust at some point. And then, of course, we have the type of terrain that we're moving over is also going to affect the duration. If we're activating or if we're activating, <laughs> if we're operating in a large, expansive environment like a field or a valley, then that is going to probably be a quicker conclusion to that combat than operating in, a, in forests or, or dense hills or an urban situation. Oh, my gosh. Remember all the way from back from the very first book. Uh, Sun Tzu's on war. We've been talking about how urban combat is the worst. It draws on. It is absolutely terrible, of course, for the civilian population. And it is just a mire for, for bodies and for equipment, urban warfare, even though it is absolutely fundamental when we're dealing with, when we're dealing with warfare that has one side that is considerably larger or more powerful than the other. Uh, urban warfare just kind of seems to be a thing that happens. But 
uh, all three of these and others, you know, marshes, uh, rivers, different geological fe features are going to mess with this duration as well. But no matter how long this fight goes on, there's always an inevitable conclusion. But before that conclusion happens, often we know when a dis decisive moment has happened. Even before the points are tallied up at the end of a, a game of 40k, we often know who won. Maybe even in turn one, or maybe even turn two or three, it became obvious who was going to win this match because of X, Y, or Z reason. Same thing with, you know, Belagarth. Let's say I'm out on the field, I'm finishing a skirmish, I look up, the center is caved, the right has caved, and all of the people I'm looking at on the other side are, you know, veterans. You know, as good or me, as me or better. Well, that's been a decisive moment. There's still going to be some fighting, obviously. I might be able to take out, a, you know, a couple more with me, or uh, you might, might be able to draw out a game of 40k, but a lot of times we can see, boom, that was the decisive moment. That is when this conflict was decided. And if we can figure out when that is, that can uh, show us, if we're on the, the, the back foot here, if we can recover, right? If we're bringing in more troops, understanding the difference between this decisive moment, when it's still possible to win, and when losing is kind of gonna happen, no matter what we do, it's, it's gonna be, it's just on its way. These extra troops can either be reinforcements or sacrifice, right? If we're in a position where the reinforcements are going to be able to help us actually boost up and achieve the victory there, then that is before that decisive moment. In fact, these reinforcements might be decisive in of themselves. But if we're on the back foot and there is no recovery, if we're on the back foot and that decisive moment has already come, well, then we're just sending people in to be sacrificed. Because the moment has come, the moment is gone, and we can only salvage what is left. So this is something good to remember before we even go. I've, I've looked at a, a certain part of a line, for instance. You know, I, I look up and, you know, our, our side, is, the toilet bowl is going. One side of our, our flank has collapsed. And at that point, you can look at it and say, okay, well, if I run up there right now, let's say they're struggling. If I run up there right now, will my presence actually matter? If I run up there right now, Will my contribution to that combat actually turn it around? Or will I just be throwing myself into the grinder? Throwing one more log into the crucible to fan these flames? Because if that's the case, well, then I'm far better off switching to another point in the line. Maybe trying to form up with some other folks and come up with another plan. Because, yeah, that, I'm not a reinforcement at that point. I'm a sacrifice. This is kind of ambiguous, though, right? We're talking about this decisive moment as though it's this ephemeral thing that's hard to define. Well, Clausewitz gives us a few different situations which we might, we might think of as decisive, right? If the possession of an object, for instance, is the reason for the fight, then it, the loss of that object is decisive. If you have one team that has it and the other team takes it, at that point you have a, a decisive moment that has taken place. Because presumably... Enough force has been applied to actually take that object in a meaningful and concrete way. But we're going to come back to talking about the crisis stage here in a minute. But let's just say for a second that that is how we win. Possession of the object, boom, we win. The second one is if possession of ground is the reason for the fight, then the loss of that ground is decisive. You know, if, if we're looking for this particular hilltop, 
and conquering that hilltop is going to give our artillery a better view of the entire area, then conquering that hilltop is decisive in of itself. Now, this one is tricky, because as we had spoken about before, not all ground is needing to be held on to all the time. A lot of ground is transitory, right? It's something that can be taken or given up fairly easily, and it doesn't have a lot of fortifications or, or any of the like. Forests, for instance, that is not this wave. If you possess a forest, that is great defensive ground. Losing a forest as a defensive kind of area, well, we saw that in the French Revolutionary Wars, didn't we? When they first started to come down in through the north in France, you had that lovely forest position that uh, Dumais started to, to form up in, and then he was forced out of it. And that was huge. That was a decisive moment in that area of the campaign. And then lastly, when one side is no longer suffering disintegration. I don't mean from hydrochloric acid. The disintegration we're talking about is that natural attrition. As we're fighting back and forth, you're losing a person, I'm losing a person. You're taking off models, I'm taking off models. There's this back and forth, right? This, this mutual attrition that is occurring. When one side stops occurring losses, when one side is no longer suffering that attrition, that's been the decisive moment, hasn't it? Because they're not going to lose anymore. It's a mop-up operation at that point. So once they stop hemorrhaging people, once one team is able to keep everybody together, at that point, we've had a decisive moment. And again, none of this takes into account purposeful and timely reinforcements. You know, if, if one of these things seems lost and then we have the reinforcements come in at the proper time, then th this isn't going to be decisive. Decisive in this particular case means that no help is coming. No stratagems can be played. No tricks are up our sleeve. We've lost the ground. We've lost our object. Or we're hemorrhaging people when our opponent is no longer doing so. Before, however, you heard me mention a concept called crisis stage. Right? And, and the entire battle could be said to have been in crisis stage, but one of the most dangerous parts of this, and what we actually call specifically the crisis stage, is after one of these decisive moments. Because capitalizing on it is huge, and too many times I have seen victory get snatched away because of arrogance. Because of the feeling of, oh, we've done it. We're, we're done now. Um, we can just rest on our laurels or take our sweet time. Or, or anything along those lines, um, the crisis stage doesn't stop. We don't call that to being ended until forces have reassembled and are ready to go on to the next engagement. So in his historically speaking, this means that with a battle is won, we've pulled back our advancing troops, we've pulled in our wings, we're set up, we've got our wagon train, we're ready to go. The crisis stage is now over, we are one large army. While we are still spread out, the crisis exists. Because like we said, timely reinforcements, the difference between that and a sacrifice is how can our opponent respond? Are they in a position to drive those reinforcements into the ground as a sacrifice or are they so spread out? Did their victory cost them so much cohesion that our concentrated force of reinforcements can actually do something? The crisis stage is huge and I've seen it in Bell too. People kind of spread out. The, the battle seems won. You've got people who are talking to their friends, people who are just kind of messing around. And if they have a dogged and determined enemy who is not giving up and who has not admitted defeat and is still observing this crisis stage as a moment to come back, 
that is dangerous. In fact, a lot of danger exists in the crisis stage simply because it is not as intense as the battle itself. A battle, the combat, keeps us on our toes. We are focused. We are focused when people are throwing shots at us. We are focused when we're throwing dice, when it's in the midst of it. We are not as focused when we think that we've won, when we're just going through the motions. Oh, I've legged my opponent. From here on out, I don't have to try as hard. Oh, I've taken out a good flank of my opponent's uh, force over there. This battle is decided. I've got more vets on my side anyways. This battle is decided. Oh, I've taken out one of my opponent's key models. It's decided now. That, that lacks that feeling of relaxation that comes after we think that we've won can take it away. Because that decisive moment, a decisive moment implies that we continue with the same intensity and level of activity that we did to get to that point. In the game that's coming up, there was a decisive moment toward the beginning that if it hadn't been capitalized on, would not have been decisive. If I hadn't pressed into it, it would not have been as decisive. So it's not enough to give ourselves, boom, we've done it. We actually have to follow through on it. We have to see ourselves through this crisis stage and make sure that we do not get bitten by the wounded tiger who fights so much more fiercely knowing that death is at hand. And when we're talking in a historical sense, there are, there are a couple of different things that can, of course, delay coming together after this crisis stage. Night is one of those big things, especially if we're talking about Clausewitz's time when you didn't have radios, walkie-talkies, or satellite imaging. You were just kind of like, Marco, and trying to find out where everybody was. Night can, can extend this crisis stage and still leave one vulnerable. Uh, thickly wooded areas or other um, places that break up coherency can also do this. So it is good to be mindful that just because a victory has been achieved does not mean it will continue. We still must keep our wits about us. We still must keep our finger on the trigger. And two things of import on, on this idea of we're talking about the crisis stage and these moments of decision, right? A flank attack and rear attacks are going to have way more favorable outcomes than most other attacks. That seems, again, like... No duh. But if we're looking at mathematically, it absolutely is the case. Where if we're coming from an angle that our enemy does not expect or that they're not as prepared from, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be far more effective. And it's gonna take us to a more decisive place, give us more decisive options than, you know, not performing either of those types of attacks. The other big thing of import here is the moral effect of surprise like from reinforcements. If we think we're going to win, if we've already got it into our heads and we've you know, pulled back on the intensity and then suddenly there's reinforcements. Let's say I'm looking at my opposing line and I'm like, okay, I don't see a whole lot of vets over there. They're starting to move backwards as we've got this momentum forwards. I'm starting to feel good. I'm starting to feel very, okay, here comes Toto. Oh no, there's TF and Moses and... And, and, and suddenly you've got this demoralizing effect that is all the more severe because we thought we were going to win, because we thought that the match was in the bag, right? And then suddenly it's not. I've done this on the 40k table before. I've gotten into a position where I'm like, okay, I've got my opponent pinned down. I've got command of the board. I've got this. And then I start accruing losses. 
And those losses are so much more impactful on my mind because I thought I am winning. I'm good here. So making sure that we mitigate that particular surprise, if we're the ones on the receiving end is huge, but understanding that that surprise exists, if we're being part of the reinforcement and we're still catching them at this crisis stage, remember? The difference between a sacrifice and reinforcements is timing. And this crisis stage is huge for that, understanding this crisis stage. And all of this, of course, points to the idea of that risk of full attack. Back at the beginning of this section, we had talked, of course, about how most war, most battles are not won by one large oomph, but won by smaller actions that combine into one larger victory. And the problem with trying to push for that oomph is the exhaustion of forces before a decisive result. We might play all of our cards before our opponent does, and we don't know what we're up against, and suddenly that we've got a an upset in our crisis stage. Our opponent may do something that we don't plan on them to do, but because our momentum is going in a particular direction, we're not able to arrest it and or redirect before our opponent is able to capitalize on us being out of position. Or even if we do win, perhaps it was so disorganized or so poorly done tactically that we have achieved what is known as a Pyrrhic victory, which is, yeah, we may have won the battle, but there's no way to prosecute the war after that because we don't have the forces or we don't have the morale to do so. It got crushed for this one action, for this one battle. We gotta avoid those Pyrrhic victories. And before we go, before we talk with Kaji about this, this lovely game that he and I had, we're gonna talk one more time about the dispositions of victory. What are things that we can do to make our results decisive and to, make, and to manage our crisis stage, to make sure that crisis stage doesn't bite us in the keister? got a couple of things here. The first one is making sure that we march in separate large units that are able to support one another. Remember the division system that was being developed at the time that we are studying the French Revolutionary Wars that will be perfected by Napoleon. This idea of the large army breaking into the smaller sections that are able to be mutually supportive, able to go and put pressure on where there is already some existing. One to fix the target, others to come in and capitalize on the target. This is a good way to, to manage victory, making sure that we've got options, right? An advanced guard, folks who are going forward, folks who are acting as a buffer, folks who are kind of flushing it out. This is huge. I know that I use this in 40K all the time. You have that, that buffer, the screen, literally a screen that keeps the enemy off of your important stuff. Are, is your artillery your important stuff? Okay, you've got the infantry out there screening for them. Is your infantry the important stuff? Okay, you've got your calves screening for them and vice versa. Like what is important and what can you place between your opponent and what is important to slow them down? Advance guard. Flanking columns. We have the, the different columns, of course, the different divisions, making sure that some of those divisions are dedicated to trying to get around trying to get those flanks, trying to get those rear attacks, threaten the line of retreat in many cases. I know there's a few 40K uh, matches or, or, or game types where you have to maintain presence on your home objective in order to get command points. How much better is it as an attacker to capture somebody's home objective and not just take an objective in general from them, but also choke them out from their supply? This is the joy right here of a flanking column. And then to prevent our opponent from doing the same to us, 
to making sure that we can capitalize on a decisive moment when it matters and that we can throw our opponent off if a crisis stage should emerge, reserves. I know we've talked about it before, but having some sort of reserves, even if it's not like a dedicated unit of it, but like one person, one person hanging back with the archers to see where am I needed? Okay, do I need to flank over here and put pressure on this side? Or do we have a weakness in the line over here that I need to, that I need to fill? Reserves are absolutely huge. And this is, how, this is how we achieve decisive results, right? We prioritize what we're doing. We make sure that we understand what our priorities are, even if they are shifting around, which they will, throughout the course of the battle, and that we're using indirect action to achieve our objectives, to, achieve, to make sure our operations are correct, so that, so that our opponent doesn't know what we're doing. Surprise! We've got to have that, that, that nature, the nature of surprise. We're trying to judge the duration based on how we think we're going to do and how we're doing at any given amount of time. And if we are doing well, if we have reached that decisive moment of putting our opponent on the back foot, making sure that we can capitalize on it and not be taken advantage of in the crisis stage as we wish to do to our opponent. And here to kind of talk about these themes and, and some of the other ideas that are kind of bouncing around in my head uh, based on this reading are my good, is, is, there we go, proper grammar, my good friend, Kaji. Here to talk with me about the idea of a decisive victory and decisive results in combat is uh, a longtime friend, my apprentice, my pal, and you've heard him before, Kaji. Welcome, dude. Thank you. Always glad to be here. Welcome to have you on. And uh, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to this because we are, we're also going to be playing a game. This is going to be another one of those uh, split episodes where we're going to do about 15 minutes beforehand and 15 minutes afterwards, uh, just kind of discussing the ideas from the chapter and how they apply to an actual game that's happening like right now. Well, well not right now. This is like the pregame, and then that'll be the postgame. But uh, so when we're looking at this, one of the things, let's just jump right in. Um, one of the things that I know about like meta, which is what we talked about last show, is that it's constantly changing and that it really dictates what tactics are going to be effective, right? Like if the, the meta shifts in one particular way, like the door shields, for instance, when they were in Belagarth, there were certain tactics that were useful against them and there were certain tactics that were not useful against them. And when, when the meta changed, your priorities changed. And in this chapter, Clausewitz talks about these defensive and offensive operations, right? You know, destroying your opponent, taking or uh, defending an objective, or taking or defending a place. These things change. They reprioritize. And I think that that also goes from list to list, right? So like your list, from what I'm seeing right here just in front of me, this looks like a high mobility list here. Absolutely. Uh, the meta has definitely shifted into that uh, high mobility. We were kind of mentioning that uh, earlier. Uh, the Thousand Suns that I brought with me have a lot of flying. And uh, they got really good cult disciplines now, too. So there's many different ways that you can you can maneuver about it. I did bring, like, the Cult of Duplicity, giving me, like, that extra teleport, even. Sure. Um, and as we know, a shifting battlefield... Uh, can change an entire game. 
Absolutely. And um, it's one of the things that we talk about in this chapter as well, is the idea of a flanking maneuver being far more effective than other types, even with we were just talking about numerically, a flanking maneuver or an attack from behind can really disrupt things and can help cement uh, a victory or push you more towards that victory. And so being able to teleport all over the field, that's pretty much that. You know, you, you're able to get where that's able to be. I'm going to have to watch my pockets. You know, make sure that I'm not leaving openings in places that I don't want you to be in. Otherwise, you'll be there, I guess. <laughs> and, I mean, I play against Toto, and he's Grey Knights, and so I'm I'm used to your shenanigans and your blipping all over the field, like, uh, I got you. You're just jealous. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm running my Knights again because that's, that's kind of what I'm doing these days, and I don't have a single Psyker option in my Codex. If I was Chaos Knights, they have one. But I am uh, I'm not Chaos Knights, so I don't. I think this is going to be interesting uh, because I feel like our priorities in this one are going to be less def destroying our enemy. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like when, when I'm looking at these three priorities, I'm thinking that taking objectives and taking places is going to be more important because we both have excellent field control options to us. Definitely think that destroying the enemy is going to be very prevalent. Oh, sure. But the place coverage um, is going to be really key because, as far as I know, most knights are pretty tall. So if you don't have a way to hide, you can't really escape my, my tactics. True. Where I will have probably a lot more pockets for that because I have a much shorter list. Well, I mean, you're counting on the idea that I didn't just bring armager spam. I mean, armagers are still pretty tall. They're not titanic, though. Mm, that's, so that's right. That's huge in this one. Um, I just need to be able to see you. But regardless, we both have the ability to get around. You know, I've I've got high movement scores. You've got, uh, I'm sure, high high movement scores as well. And then Trixie warp stuff to be able to get you around the field. So, yeah, like I said, I think. I mean, obviously, this is war, right? This is battle. Destroying our opponent is a priority, regardless of anything else. It's still on the priorities. But as a general rule, I feel like this edition is also just objective-based priorities. Like, that's first, I mean, like, second, if not first, at least for me, being able to be like, am I scoring points, right? I do always hear location, location, location. <laughs> well, we're not real estate agents, but I think it applies here, too. I think it applies here, too. Um, and that, and, that uh, and you were just talking about wanting to destroy me, first off, like that being one of your primary objectives in all of this. How how are you going to shorten the combat as somebody who wants to, to do that, which to me says you're going to try to do it quickly? Um, the, the force of your, of your army, I think, works that way. Are you looking for a, a short fight or a long fight out of this? Uh, I, I feel like any time that you're going for a fight, you definitely want to make it as short as possible because that's how you increase your own survivability. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I'm going to try to monopolize on that here is I do a lot of mortal wound damage, and then I have a ton of AP, right? So I'm able to kind of shred right through some armored units. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of, like, height mobility, uh, melee fight phases, all those kind of goodies. Try to kind of keep your guys tied up. Um, but again, like, the the objective priority is still going to be very important depending right. on on what our uh, missions and such are too right 
And I mean, of course, I think both of us are taking a certain purge against one another. I would be foolish not to take a Pour the Witch against you, which is a, uh, a specific one for if I'm killing Psyker units, I'm getting points for that. And you have a Psyker army. So taking that one, pretty important. And then I have a vehicle army, so if you don't take Bring It Down, you're a silly, silly man. Uh, but I don't think you're that silly. Uh, I was class clown in school. Well, hopefully you're <laughs> not. not. Really. Hopefully you're not in this particular case. I'm, 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 I'm hedging my bets, right here. I think that you're going to be able to, uh, to give me a good run here, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, but let's let's talk now about indirect actions, because this is something that I've seen you do not just in the 40k table, but also on the field, like something like Belagarth where a feint isn't always just a physical one where you, you know, convince somebody you're going someplace and then hit some, somewhere else. But there's also feints upon the field as well, and then feints upon the table. I have seen people attempt feints and then fail at them, either because they weren't convincing enough or they over-dedicated to it and actually made it their move rather than just a feint. How do we find the balance? Well, the balance is going to be definitely very difficult uh, because any feint needs to have that commitment behind it. And a feint only needs to be a feint if somebody's not going to stop it, too. So keeping your options open on that is is key, right? The, the feint has just the commitment to the point where you can make the adjustment. Um, so crossing that that point of no return line, I guess for lack of better terms. Um, really, it's just got to be a good judgment call. I, your chances are already kind of 50-50 on the action. Um, anybody can see through, see through an action and counter what you're trying to do. But if you, you make your opponent dedicate to that zone, right, in a wholehearted mash, manner, you know, that one-two pump fake, mm -hmm. Right? A lot of times they'll be like, oh, that's just a feint. They'll kind of like go back, but then you'll pump it back and they overcommit to it. Mm. Right? So trying to get the opponent's dedication, I guess, is the, the biggest determining factor for me. Well, it's that idea of being convincing, right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think keeping your options, like you said, open. Throwing a, a shot, for instance, from such an angle where you could throw a, sh a shoulder uh, snipe from it, or you could throw a kidney wrap from it, just because of the the nature of the angle that you're coming in from. You know, wherever your opponent blocks, then you can be in the other place. And that one's not quite a feint, but it's kind of the same idea, right? You're you're threatening one particular area, making your opponent think you're going to go towards a, a vital area for them, where instead you go for a vital area for yourself. And that may be one and the same, you know, but uh, but yeah, it depends on what your objectives are, right? It's what you're so how you're scoring points or how you're bringing it all together at the end. How do you define victory, right? Yeah, you got to make sure that your form stays good. Mm -hmm. And physically, that's easy to kind of say to a martial artist, you know, good form. But with army cohesion, keeping your yourself in a position uh, that looks strong mm -hmm. um, is the same thing, keeping good form. And that comes with practice. How do you think you're going to do today? Because um, it's been a while since you played, from my understanding. Oh, yeah, it's been a bit, but I do a lot of turn-based games. Do love you? XCOM. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I have. Yeah. yeah. I love that game. 
nice. Civilization Six too. So do love I keep myself sharp. Good, good. Because like you said, the that practice, that unit cohesion. I mean, I know it's important for my list. Like if I, especially during uh, setup, if I don't set up correctly, my chances of winning plummet immediately. Like there's very specific rules that I need to abide by in my setup in order to make this list effective. Um, but if I do, I got some pretty good combos going on. But that also comes with that practice, with that cohesion being like, okay, I, I know in my head, this is all fresh, what measurements I need to be having here. Um, but I don't know if, if yours is as specific as that. That's a very, I know that my list is uh, a lot of times specific. I, <laughs> I was looking for another word and that's, that's just the one. Um, well, conveniently for me, I really pretty much only have bolters and psychic powers. And psychic powers are fairly universal at an 18 inch range. Sure. So, and you gotta read them anyways, where they tell you where your range is, so. Well, that's nice. And then the bolter, I mean, the Thousand Sun bolters are way better than normal bolters. Negative two AP, yeah. I mean, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Like, Cause you got like ghost rounds or something, right? It just passes through. Yeah, that's totally metal. I feel like it needs like a, a cannibal corpse style emblem inferno right there. I really want one of those uh, guitar marines. Seen them? Oh, the noise uh, marine? Noise guys. Yeah. yeah. You chose the wrong Primarch. You got to go after uh, Fulgrim, the Slimesh oh, dude. But a thousand suns. I should have one too. Why am I not included? Because because Slimesh said let there be sound, and then they went guam and. I mean, it wasn't like that. That's that wasn't the greatest sound in the world. It was just a tribute. I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good old tenacious D. Oh my God, that's like twenty years old, dude. Shh. <laughs> oh my God. We're closer to twenty fifty than nineteen ninety. Shush. No. All right. Yeah, that hurts. That hurts. Um, so what we're looking for here, obviously, is a decisive victory. Right, we're going to kind of go back over these ideas after the game, but um, a decisive victory here, I think, for both of us, revolves around our largest model, right? You've got Magnus. I'm looking at this gorgeous dude right in front of me, and I feel like he is very critical to victory on that side of the board. I mean, he is a quarter of the army. Yeah. You know, uh, so losing him would definitely be a big loss. Uh Though, it's the don't put all your eggs in one basket mentality, oh, of too. Course, of course. Right? Like, yes, he is awesome and great, and if you try to rush in on him, I will have a heyday. But uh, we'll see how that plays out. Otherwise, I mean, I feel like he should just have a giant red circle on him somewhere. Well, yeah. He's giant. He's gorgeous. Is he Titanic? I haven't gone against him yet. I can't remember if he's Titanic. I'll have to look. We'll find out together. Feel like um, yes, because I feel like that's going to be huge for both of us. Because I also have one large unit, my Knight Paladin, who is my you know he's a fifth of or a quarter of my army, and he's also very good. And he's like oh, I I feel I I tried to make my list so that if one thing goes down, other things can work. It's not that you know it's a a perfect machine, and if anything goes wrong, it doesn't work anymore. Because that, as we know, any perfect plan isn't. The second it, you know, hits the enemy. Yeah. Right. Once you once you come into contact, time time to wing it. Time to wing it. 
and uh, just hope you have the best setup you do. Again, because I, I have to start with a certain setup. That doesn't dictate where I go from that. You know, there's a lot of different plays that I can do from this particular setup, but it's still pretty particular. You know what I'm saying? Well, you, you have your warlord, you know? When, when your general does go down, things aren't going to be working as efficiently as they could. Uh, now, if you have good lieutenants and stuff around that can pick up that slack, again, that's just kind of like an old military reference. Right, right. Uh, yeah, but the good generals have good backup plans, even if they're not going to be there no more. A contingency. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm reading over there correctly, I'm seeing a lot of fast moving stuff. Demon princes, Magnus. Uh, you got Ariman over there, and then I'm seeing some Terminators, and a Hellbrute. And a Hellbrute, yeah. I mean, you know, got the couple demon princes, Magnus, the Ariman, as you said, a couple squads of Terminators, the Hellbrute, and then I'm rocking three Rubric Marines and uh, Terminator and Sorcerer, or Sorcerer and Terminator armor. Nice as well. Nice. Well, I made pretty nice. Tricked him out? Oh, I tricked him out. Yeah. I'll let you know as we're introducing. He's got a lot of things on him. Heck yeah. Well, you're going against my one paladin, three helverins, and the rest warglaive list. Armager spam, like I said. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we'll... I think we're gonna have a good game here. So we'll be back with y'all as soon as we conclude this here match. All right, well, we've just finished out our game, and the ending score ended up being 94 to 24. Yep, got tabled out on uh, turn four, um, and the losing battle really started on turn three, where you started to really overtake me in points. Mm -hmm. Is that what you would say was like the decisive moment, if we were kind of talking about the subject matter from the chapter? Was there a... Was there a decisive moment where things really started to go one way? This is a really big first action game. Yeah. So the the initiative going to you really gave you a huge advantage because I wasn't able to make any any engagements. Mm -hmm. um, and you took out my, my Lord of War, my general. You cut the head off my snake real fast. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I had uh, three Helverins all with Slayers of Beasts for the... the um, the free, la the free blade lance, and that means that they are uh, adding one to their hit rolls if they are going against monsters and or vehicles. And Magnus was definitely a monster and or vehicle who was big enough to not necessarily be able to hide anywhere. Um, for those of you who are interested, by the way, I'm going to definitely try to post this on YouTube, doing like a little play-by-play -play sort of idea, uh, rather than like the super long video. So if you want to check that out, um, that'll hopefully be up here in like... Hopefully in August, but uh, I'm not very good at that part. <laughs> and we also have a bunch of um, vacations and whatnot. But it'll get up there. It'll get up there, and uh, yeah, that'll be it'll, be it'll be interesting to see it kind of played out right there. But what what priorities? Like, what priorities did you have coming into this, and would you shift them now? Like, kind of seeing what what the end result was. My priorities were definitely trying to get the objective capture right off the bat. Sure. Um, trying to kind of get into those zones and lock them down um, with what I would hope a little capability to leave as well. 
Um, I basically got backed into a corner when my uh, semi-flanking maneuver, more or less, got stopped. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, that mobility, I really tried to, to halt it. Uh, perhaps things would have also gone differently if I hadn't been so good about watching my, my bubbles. Like, the, like limiting your ability to flank and or come at me from the rear so that I could keep my attention facing forward. And for this one, there were five objectives in the center that we were trying to uh, go up and perform an action on in order to like uh, basically score on it at the end of the game. Um, so it was already highly contested. I had a secondary that had me going for the center. That's where I was going to be able to get any points. You did too, though, right? Yep. <laughs> We both got a little bit of the. Oh, I got a little bit of those. You got a lot of them. And that's mine. Honestly, mine came at the end. Like after it started a snowball effect. And as long as I managed that crisis stage, which is what we were at from, like you said, from about turn three onwards. Like if, if I would have played stupid, there was definitely a chance that you could have been like, oh, wow. And then like, you know, done the smart thing and, and outwitted me or something along those lines. But yeah, um, in terms of duration... It probably would have benefited you for that to be drawn out a little bit more in terms of like, because you had great zone control, great field control. Like, and if you guys are able to watch that video, you'll see it. Like, that his first turn, he was just, he ate up the board. Like, I got nothing in terms of like the primary. I got a four uh, for the primary when we came into that, my, my second round, because the entire board was Thousand Suns. Yeah, but my Terminators just were not able to survive the uh, the high intensity of your your very elite army. Yeah, and and that's the difference here is I, uh, you know, if we're talking about um, being practiced at stuff like we were last last uh, episode. Yes, you're coming into this, and you were going against a person who, for the last two months, has been studying meta and has been honing um, an army based on you know kind of what's doing well in in tournaments and you know what i've just been discovering works and what doesn't work and what was the last what was the last game you played oh i mean i've only played the thousand suns in ninth edition but i've only played this was my third game with them dang so it's a fairly new army to me and how long has it been since you played oh months i don't think i've played since the winter and i was noticing that too like there was a lot of stuff that very much could have changed uh how, how various things went um, based on just forgetting, you know, just little rules here and there or the way that some, like one little thing's supposed to go off. I feel like that the army could have performed much more. Um, well, it was really you know. the big one that I had was that Kabbalic ritual phase right. during my psychic. I missed using that the entire first turn, but I was pretty on top of it for the other ones. But I went from 23, I think, to like, almost like 14 by turn right. two you really took out a chunk um not not double checking my placement on that demon prince that mm-hmm. really is what put me in i think the biggest hurt position because there was nothing i was going to do about magnus he was dead right right and yeah uh, he's he's such a big target like you'd be a fool not to shoot at him like if i hadn't gone after him i would be an idiot for him. that's a quarter of your army yep and uh, there's no way to hide him. Like, right. even if he was tucked behind a building because he, he has so many wounds, he's so large, it doesn't it doesn't count. Right. I, I understand that. I use a Castorus. Uh, he's a little thicker, like my Castorus, of course. He's got, you know, t- 
in a <laughs> we had uh, Cassius in the early episodes, and that that cute little whine that you heard in the background is Kaji's little Wego. Great little Chihuahua wiener dog, my Chihuini. I'm not the biggest dog person, but guys, this dog like is an adorable dog. In fact. Kaji, remind me. I want to get a picture of you, me, and the dog and put it on Instagram if you're down for it. Absolutely. <laughs> Check it out, y'all. Um, Wego's cute. But back to back to this fight here. Um, we have Magnus. Magnus is rough. Like, he's He's got so much potential. Like what you were showing me in his rules. Like he's got so much potential. Like he looks like he should be worth those points. But... <sighs> he's just not thick enough. Yeah, I mean, he's got that four-up invuln. Which is awesome, but I had that on my night too, and a two-up save, and a, you know, there's a bunch of other things that I, I honestly think that my night was probably better on the field in a lot of ways than Magnus was. Absolutely. Well, Magnus also doesn't have any range weaponry. Right. All of his range comes from his psychic capabilities. Mm. Granted, I think he's got like an 18-inch movement. Right. Um, so he gets around plenty, um, but no ranged, and toughness seven. Right. You know, a little, just not thick enough. His armor is not good enough. He should have been in Terminator gear. <laughs> should have been in Terminator gear. And, and you know, I, and this is something that uh, TF and I have gone over, of course, is this idea of boys, not toys. Uh, there's a lot to be said for more boots on the ground than, like, big, towering monstrosities of psychic intensity. So, um, you know, you, you were look, I know you've been looking at, like, different tanks and that sort of thing that might take the place or... Um, that sort of thing right yeah still kind of a fresh army so like i literally brought all i had for it um so magnus has to be in there right now right right well when you're able to mix it up a little bit more that'll that'll definitely give you more options i know that's part of toto's um issue too when we've been playing is he's got like the one army and he's he's an adult so he's you know he's spending his money on bills and (laughs) rent and that sort of thing he doesn't have disposable income to be able to invest overly in some of this stuff. So it's understandable. Yeah, it's pretty easy to slow build in Warhammer. Oh, yeah. Though, you know, so it's like get a box here or there once every like, couple of months. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah, you can you definitely build an army, but it takes time. It does. If you're, you're living on a budget. Mm-hmm. And, but it's worth it. I, I enjoy the, the finished product. Of having a nice a nice list, and th- having the painted one is nice too. Like I, I really enjoy having TF's work on my nights, and that's coming up by the way. Uh, he's been doing amazing work on it, and when he's finally finished, I want to have that on the Instagram too. Um, but lastly, uh, kind of with what we were talking about in terms of the chapter, indirect action. We didn't really have a whole lot of that in this particular game. It was mostly like you knew what I was trying to do. I was trying to go for the center. I had said as much in my secondaries. And you wanted to go for the center, and so it almost seemed like we were destined just to have a slugfest in the center, which is usually a place that I don't want to de- uh, concentrate. Like, I try to stay on the wings if I can, uh, but based on what our objectives were and kind of the situation on the board, like the way that everything was set up, kind of had to go there, you know? Army makeup came a lot into the, the war glaives. You know, you're rocking a lot of those chain swords. I mm-hmm. think you had five, six of those? Uh, seven. Seven, seven. war glaives, yeah. Yep. Uh, so they definitely outnumbered your shooting tech. 
even your big boy with the big chainsword. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you had a very good like encroaching army, and much the same to me. Uh, very very mainly focused. When I liked, I liked the fact the the inclusion of the paladin and the helverins because they do give that long range capability, and they may only be hitting with a negative two AP, but at three damage a pop with the volley of fire that they can put the volume of fire that they can put down they're use they're very useful yep uh they were able to clear some good stuff so yeah like i said i can't really think of any indirect actions i used against you to try to draw you off of something i was very direct <laughs> with what i was doing here yeah the battle was was very straightforward yeah I know that for my priority, like I, I, I ended up tabling you, but that honestly wasn't my priority. I was going for the objectives. I was trying to secure, you know, point X, Y, or Z. And if you happen to be there or threatening it, then I was going to take you off the board, obviously, because I don't want to be threatened <laughs> in that way. But again, that's not indirect. It's just my priority was the objectives and I played the game and that's, and that's why I got the points that I did. I've learned, been learning this as I've been playing a lot more competitive people is like, you really have to dedicate to the points. I mean, the killing's fun, killing's fine, but those objectives are huge. Yeah. It, uh, I think more or less that first turn too, where you kind of separated your two lines because you were rocking a lot of really long range stuff and your, your stuff with the shorter range and chain swords made that really good front wall that just kind of like kept me out of half the board. Sure. Um, and if if I had gotten that first turn and I was able to make that encroach with the way I teleport and stuff like that, you know, the I, I would have been a lot more over the board and been more in your face. And sure. potentially, again, even had that Magnus. And definitely had more of a delaying action, like allowing me or the, being having the ability to take the center and, and like you said, encroach first and make you have to come and meet me rather than the vice versa. And I think, I think you would have done it even better because you had way better mobility um, ability. Like you said, Magnus moves 18. And you got the ability to just blip people all over the field with uh, various teleportation stuff. And so, yeah, I, I think if you had gotten first, you may have even done better than me in, in terms of taking board control. Mm. The world may never know. Well, the world may never know, but we should. I'd love to play another matchup and, and see if if, uh, if, it, if it makes a, a big difference, like who goes first in this particular one. Because I know it does. Like, the, the first turn is, is massive. It was massive last edition. It is this one, too. And the, the real challenge to this game, in my opinion, is not just building a list that can whoop some tail first turn. That's what we all want, is something that can just blow our opponents off the table. But a list also that can... Uh, receive they can defend well on the first turn in case that they in case that's coming to you and yeah my dudes definitely defended well um the biggest problem again is that magnus point sink not having many other options for that kind of locks me in that corner um and against more infantry clearing lists he will do a lot better or maybe even people with less range sure you know, because if you're looking at, like, a 36, you wouldn't have been able to tag them like that. Mm-hmm. So, 48, questionable. 36, I don't think you would have been able to get them. Solid point. And against, I mean, like, especially against some sort of non-psyker army. Like, you just do ridiculous, ridiculous damage, ridiculous everything going on there. Man, that's where Mar got most of my damage. Right. 
you know, you took most of my psychic damage out on that first turn because Magnus, he lays down the thunder. I figured he's large. He's got the wings. He's got the determined look on his face. Like, that guy looks like he came to party. And I got to take him off the board. Otherwise, he's going to party all over me. Well, American Pie there, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ask your parents, kids. Um, no, don't ask your parents. That is not <laughs> something you Google. Safe search. Oh. Safe search. So what do you think for next time? What kind of changes might you make? I know that like units wise, you're kind of locked in, but are you like, is your cult? Are you like, are you thinking about if the cult is working for you? Do you have psychic abilities that you could live or without or what are you thinking? I'm definitely thinking the cult is perfect. Um, the biggest thing was Magnus and not having any, any damaging range. Right. I can't sit back and shoot back at you. Mm -hmm. Where those defilers that I was looking at right there, they're, they're really, like, they got some range. Like, 48 inches is, like, one of their, like, shorter range. Sure. So, rocking those, having a little bit of that uh, for some fire support. Mm -hmm. um, and not having Magnus just eat that 475 points or whatever it is for him. I mean, I can't wait to see him all painted up. He's oh. going to make a fantastic centerpiece for, you know displays or, or or something along those lines we'll figure out a better way to use them too um not having that first turn also took all of my defensive capabilities i was definitely going to try to like put that uh as in each one where he's glamored up can't see him you know taking big one to hit that would have helped him out a lot um i had another one on him too that would have i think increased his save or armor or something like that just Tanked him up a little bit. Sure. Um, but again, like, got to be able to get past that that first psychic phase for those kind of things. Um, I definitely need to know my stratagems a little bit better, though I don't really think there was anything I could have done defensively through stratagems for mm -hmm. him. Um, and there's no way for me to have kept him out of range either. Right, I mean, yeah, my Helverins have a 60-inch 60, 60 range, so if they're not just on the back line in a corner and your dude is on the back line in the opposite corner, then yeah, they're going to be able to reach out and touch you, which is nice. I mean, again, they're not strong AP-wise, but if they are like getting through, they're getting through. A 50-50 chance for three damage is True. pretty solid, though. And I know, again, like I, I, I don't like to equate... Uh, victories and whatnot to dice luck but there was certainly quite a bit of that going on like i made some very crucial rolls and you didn't um and i also made some very crucial saves that you also that you also didn't and i mean again that's all dice luck and it's all over the place and we could say nine thousand different things about it but uh that does play a factor too yeah if magnus had soaked all of the damage of your first turn man i mean i would have been great he didn't but it would have been great <laughs> No, I, I had to put the hurt on him. Well, his smoking boots tell a story. <laughs> well, my man, I very much look forward to our next game. That was a lot of fun. Um, especially now that you know a little bit more about like what I'm bringing and how the knights work. I know that they're a little bit different than last edition in terms of the different perks and stuff I can take. And I think knowing about that a little bit more, You've got experience. <laughs> You've got experience dealing with it now. 
uh, and I think that'll definitely help as well. And I'm I'm glad to have survived my first encounter with the Thousand Sons. I was terrified about this encounter because Thousand Sons are terrifying. These all psyker armies that I keep playing up against, y'all, they test me. Definitely hope I can do a little more of that uh, first turn damage too, if I remember to do my Kabbalic rituals. That would help. Remembering one's rules definitely helps one uh, score and whatnot, don't you think? Right. Yeah, especially when I had like, what was it, like 29, I think, would have been that first. Woof. Yeah, that's yep. a lot. Oh, yeah. But, sir, uh, like I said, it was great having you on. Thanks again for the interview as well. Um, yep. I'll try to have that video up before too terribly long, but, again, I, I get distracted by the books themselves, and suddenly I'm like, oh, it's been months. It's been... What is it? It's been uh, like two or three years at this point. Three years we've been doing this, and I still haven't gotten out a 12 shots video. <laughs> I've been promising that since season one. <laughs> well, thank you for having me as well. You know, it's always good to hang out with you, and great game with you. Outstanding. Well, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll see you next time, and uh, we'll also see y'all next time as well. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark signing off. <laughs>